I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now. Click on the link in this podcast for ethics credit. Today, I'm bringing you Grand Rounds, how to work through a clinical ethics problem, one ethicist's approach. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Brian S. Carter. He's Interim Director at Children's Mercy Bioethics Center and Division of Neonatology, Children's Mercy Hospital. He's the chairman and endowed professor in the Department of Medical Humanities and Bioethics, Department of Pediatrics at the UMKC School of Medicine. Dr. Brian Carter has been in practice as a neonatologist for 40 years. He's authored more than 200 peer-reviewed manuscripts and book chapters and is a frequent speaker at academic institutions in North America and internationally. Let's listen in to Dr. Carter. To pediatrics is instead of the term autonomy, the principle that talks about self-direction, being able to choose for yourself what it is that you want, children, by virtue of their developmental capacity, are not really able to speak to their own autonomy. Now, adolescents and young adults certainly have emerging autonomy. But when we talk about parents making decisions for and with their children, it's not the parent's autonomy, it's their authority vested in them through history and society and the law. Basically, the authority that the parent has to speak for the child. That's different from parental autonomy, which is they're choosing what they want done for themselves. So this is already a twist, if you will, to the uniqueness of pediatric ethics. On the right-hand side, I, I, I list four or five virtues. There are many virtues. Many of you may have learned them growing up from your parents, from your faith community, maybe from the philosophical learnings of Aristotle. And the first virtue, moral courage. If one does not have the moral courage to identify a problem and speak to it, all of the uh, these other virtues really don't obtain. So you have to be able to, we today say, see something, say something. That's a reference to moral courage. See something that's amiss, say something and try to address it. There's also pediatric bioethics considerations that are different because, as I've already alluded to, the dynamic nature of the developing child. That's one of the reasons we go into pediatrics, right? Kids change. Those in practice in the community may already be taking care of the children of children that you cared for. You have this transgenerational continuum. In neonatology, we don't do that until maybe, you know, a second baby to the same couple comes along and requires the intensive care unit. But at some point, the developing child will need to be able to contribute to decision-making. And this varies, as you know, across families, across capacity of individual children. And I think that being attentive to that evolution and knowing when it's the right time to hear the child and have them contribute to decision-making is it's a type of finesse. It's sort of akin to clinical judgment that you make in the hospital. But being able to, to do that and allow for that, I think, is a great contribution that pediatricians can make to the development of a sound a family unit as well as the development of an individual member of society, an adult, who is going to be able to speak for themselves and, and contribute in many ways. 
We know that the ever-present voice and role of the parents is unique in pediatric medicine. In adult medicine, unless one has cognitive capacity problems, the dementia and otherwise, the surrogate decision maker is rarely brought in. But in pediatrics, we always contend with the surrogate decision maker, namely the parents or legal guardian. And what guides us, in addition to principles and virtues, is this precept of best interest. Raise your hand if you've ever had contention with those that you work with about what's the best interest for this child. Yeah, it's part and parcel to what we do, especially in hospital medicine, but even in outpatient medicine. The uh, best interest of the child might be contested by the parent, or it might be that the child thinks differently from the clinician. So on and on, this best interest really requires, it demands a lot of attention. Now, I use this diagram, compliments of Mark Blyton, a PhD ethicist I worked with at Vanderbilt, who's now retired in Southern California, to help us situate where an ethical concern might lie. Now, in the center there, you see a parent holding an infant. And more times than not, this first layer, this individual interface between parent, mother, father, child, maybe even the fetus in a pregnant patient, and we're talking about fetal diagnostics and, and counseling. A lot of what clinical ethics has really attended to over the last 40 years has been this individual clinician-parent or clinician-patient interaction. So what's the best interest for the child? But I would well imagine working in hospitals, you've also found that there are times where there is discrepancy or discord within a hospital team. Primary clinician says this, the consultant says that, the nurse says this, the social worker wonders about something altogether different. And so what I see here and want to communicate in the second layer is role-related phenomena of interdisciplinary team members. And ethics issues arise in that setting as well. The role-related might even extend to the extended family. Grandmama's in the background saying this, that, and the other. If you do this for this child, then whatever's going to happen. The most demonstrative example I could give you is once I had a child in the NICU who terrible birth defects and was on life support and was failing and we counseled mother that we would recommend withdrawal from life-sustaining therapy. We engaged palliative care. We set aside a time that was designated by the mother. We were moving the child from the ICU to a parent room for privacy and grandmama wagging her finger as we were leaving that bedside. If you take that child off the ventilator, you're going to go to hell. We did a 180, went right back to the bed space, made sure that everything was okay, and we had to start all over again. I imagine you've had similar experiences. And yet, unless you have the person who's the decision maker in the room, you can't really put confidence necessarily in a decision that's made because there are external voices and powers that will influence. The third layer here, we all work in hospitals or healthcare systems. 
there are certain ethical issues that come up within hospitals and health systems that really reflect what's referred to as organizational ethics. Anybody in a leadership capacity has to contend with this. The organization has these policies and procedures, or we need to develop these guidelines and return to certain leaders, return to evidence, return to expert opinion, and glean things from the literature, and we try to set forth best practice. But it's all done within a philosophy of care, whether it's public health, charitable health, religious health system, again and again, organizational ethics. And most of us trained in medical ethics do not have expertise in organizational ethics. And we need to acknowledge that and seek additional training. So there are now possibilities to get a, a master's degree in organizational management. Not a bad idea if you want to do that. Healthcare administration, an MBA, and you could have a focus in ethics within that study. But that's somewhat new and different. And then finally, we all live in jurisdictions called counties, states, and the United States. So there may be local regulation, there may be state law, and there may be federal law that we have to work under and with. So that's the fourth layer there. So when someone comes to you and says, I have this problem, why are we taking care of this 23-weeker in the NICU? If we didn't take care of those babies, we could save so much money and vaccinate hundreds of kids. Do you see where we're crossing lines from the center to the third layer, maybe even the fourth layer? Yes, that's an ethical problem, but the resolution of that problem is not situated with this baby at the bedside. It really rests with a more global macro ethics outlook and requires engagement. So principles, virtues, best interest, situating where the ethics problem exists. Anybody here heard of care ethics? Any nurses in the field here? Nurses oftentimes are speaking about care ethics. Interesting origin to care ethics from two ladies back in the 80s. One was an educator, educational uh, philosopher, as it turns out. That's Nell Moddings. And the other, a, a psychologist who really addressed Kohlberg's child development and challenged it because it was predicated on white boys. Think about that. How we learn child development all came from following the development of little white boys. Well, we're all not little white boys, are we? And so our children may have differences in their psychological development just because they're girls, not boys. They're people of color, not white. And she made this challenge in 1982. And if you look at this timetable, 82, 84 here, this was a big departure, if you will, from old white man mainstream psychology and education starting to bring into focus what was originally called feminist ethics because it was raised by women and dealt with this very phenomena that relationships and stories matter. Now, if you're a pediatric healthcare professional, you know that relationships matter. What's one of the prime ones? Mama and baby, daddy and daughter, relationships that are valuable 
that really guide people in their decision making and what's important. It helps establish values. And so not only is the relationship important and you have to attend to that, but you actually need to dissect it a little more and hear the story behind the relationship. Why is this relationship important? It's not just because they're a parent. It's because they've endured whatever facet of life. They've had experiences. They have shared values. And so from that, these ladies guided us to move away from what might be cold, objective, principled bioethics to a little bit more kinder, gentler, friendly relation and care and compassion based ethics. So this is in the background and often not attended to, but when yours truly gets asked to do an ethics consult at Children's Mercy, I tick little boxes off principles, virtues, relationships, narrative. All of those things should guide an ethics analysis of what's the right thing to do for this child, not just a singular principled approach or virtue approach. Is that understandable? So it makes sense. It makes sense to me, or I wouldn't have put it together for you today. Now, how many of you have heard from a parent, I want you to do everything about it? All of it, right? Do everything. You know what that is? That's an invitation to ask, well, what does everything mean? Everything imaginable? Everything covered in your healthcare plan? Everything that's reasonable? Everything that's beneficial? but does not impose new burdens or harms. That requires a conversation instead of, oh yes, we'll do everything. Well, everything to an intensivist means something altogether different than everything to a family. Intensivist, I am one, guilty. You know, if something's not working, you just go pull another machine out of the closet and try that one, right? Or you ask the consultant from wherever to come down and help you with this case. That's not exactly what parents are asking for. They want your clinical judgment. They want prudence, which is a virtue, wisdom in action. They want you to be able to think, and I would say the challenge here, this is a matter of empathy. The challenge here is to imagine what it's like to be me in this situation and what I need or want for my child. Not necessarily what would you do for your child, all that, that. That might be a close approximation, but imagine what it's like to be me. That's an invitation to empathy. And that then can guide us. So sometimes parents' demands for everything might just reflect the fact that I want to be a good enough parent. And a good enough parent will insist that every stone is turned over, every opportunity is, uh, is visited. But if we want to know, we have to ask. And the problem with asking is, then you have to listen. And uh, as my eldest child says, well, dad, listening's no fun. I'd rather be talking. And he does. Another way to look at this, and this is guidance that came to me in my training in palliative medicine, was realizing that that narrative that we spoke about before and this concern to do everything, desire to be a good enough parent, might be a need to acknowledge the fact that each of us as parents, as healthcare professionals, we're writing our story. This is the story of our lives. This is what we do. We get up in the morning. We love what we do. We 
actually feel like we've made a contribution of good. I hope that's the way you feel. Psychology, you know, is, well, I remember the things I didn't do today, or I wish this had happened instead of that. And we tend to focus on the negative, but you're doing a great good every day. So they're writing their story just as you're writing your story. And when we're talking about end of life care or critical care and the risk of end of life, they have to be able to construct a story that they can live with if the child does not survive. And it would be an act of hubris if we presumed that it was our story to write. Instead, we should sit with them and perhaps have the honorific of being asked to co-author it with them. But we don't demand that this is the story you're going to live with. So again, narrative encroaches on how we make decisions and work with families. This picture is used with permission of parents. Uh, Tom and, uh, uh, oh gosh, Tom and forgetting mom's name, French. And this is little Juniper Junebug. If you're interested, I have no conflict with this. And I have the parents' permission to, to tell the story. Juniper, the girl who was born too soon. It's a book you can read. Very interesting story. Kelly. French. Interesting story about assisted reproductive technology, extreme prematurity, six months in the hospital. And I know little Junebug. She's now like uh, 12 years old, rides horses, dances, beautiful little girl. But this, being a neonatologist, is like a picture of an ethical dilemma that's unfolding. And you have your own with regard to your own specialties, I'm sure. So I'll talk a little bit about challenges in perinatal healthcare ethics. One of the first of which is this idea of periviability. Uh, can anybody tell me what periviability is? A precise definition? No, there isn't a precise definition. It, at least it can be argued because it depends on who you ask. Are you asking a parent who is on the cusp of delivering a child? 22, 23, 24 weeks? Are you asking public policymakers? Are you asking parents or healthcare professionals? And is that healthcare professional someone that actually works in the world of neonatology and obstetrics? Or is it somebody that, well, I'm a developmental psychologist and I think that those things shouldn't happen because these kids have problems? Well, some do, but many don't. And you can't tell on the day that a child's born whether they're going to graduate with flying colors and have a two-year Bailey exam that makes them just like everybody else or whether they're going to develop CP or have problems with learning. It, it's just unknowable. Maybe that's part of the reason we can't define periviability. We also need to pay attention to the sensitivity of goals and values held by individuals. So we talked about some of those variances in, in goals and values, but what's the right response? If we're talking about care in an area where we can't absolutely say it's beneficial, in which there would be no contest, we provide it. And we can't absolutely say it's harmful. It falls in an area that's called the zone of parental prerogative or discretion. And sometimes we would offer that, well, this child's condition is one that does not have a cure, perhaps it's complicated birth defects or genetics, and we're going to provide comfort care. Glenn, what is comfort care? 
It depends on who you ask again, right? And it depends on the family. What, what do you mean comfort care? Isn't everybody getting comfortable care? Why, why are you saying this is all my child gets? I want you to do everything. So healthcare ethics encroaches on neonatal, perinatal medicine, as you know. What about the pandemic? The pandem pandemic uh, gave us lots of time, a few years, to think about problems and ethics that might be unique to pediatrics. Did anybody experience a pediatric overwhelming hospitalization during the pandemic? No. What did we actually do? I have friends at Montefiore in New York that they, they turned their PICU into an adult ICU. They got pediatric ICU doctors and pediatric clinicians of varied specialties to work in the ICU. That wasn't their daily norm, but they did it in the middle of the crush. And that happened in many places across the country. So we dealt with staff equipment and allocation, but we also dealt with staff expertise. I would not have wanted to have been an intern that year. All of a sudden, I'm overwhelmed. And yet, being an intern or resident during those three critical years, there must have been a great advance and maturity and sense of confidence and competence to be able to do the right thing in a terribly overwhelming situation. So people stepped up, as you know, and there were healthcare professionals who died. We also had to contend with uncertainty, which is the daily fare of neonatologists going back to verifiability. But prognostication across different diagnostic cohorts, vaccine efficacy and uptake, or whatever you might think, in, and I'm not a politician, about what transpired during those years, the fact that this country could create a vaccine in one year was just phenomenal, historical, and Operation Warp Speed, I can't think of a better name for it. It just was incredible. But then you have vaccine efficacy, and you have contention over whether or not we should actually use it or people agreeing to take it. And if you're like me, you've probably had a couple and a couple of boosters. I'm over 65, I have other risk factors, so yeah. But I still see families whose children graduate from the ICU, five, six months in the ICU. They have BPD, they're on oxygen. They won't get a flu vaccine, they won't get a COVID-19 vaccine and they won't get an RSV immunoglobulin or monoclonal. So it's, I don't know. I, I can't figure out how people think. Maybe you can and you have, and I'd be happy to learn from you. But that was one of the problems that we had that raised ethical issues. Multi-inflammatory syndrome in, in children, uh, both short and long-term outcomes. What do we know? When do we know it? What are the ramifications? And then ramifications. What about lockdown? Everybody not going to school for the better part of the year. Are you ever going to capture that year again, that year that was lost? Generally speaking, no. We have to make accommodations thereafter. The other thing that I looked at in, in this particular instance was uh, recognizing that there's a paradigm shift in ethics in times of pandemic or crisis. 
And unfortunately, I experienced this in 1991. I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Namely, I had just finished my fellowship in 1990 and got to move to Colleen, Texas. It's not too far from here. Fort Hood. I went to medical school on an Army scholarship. So there I was at Fort Hood in July of 1990. And, you know, we operated a 12 or 15 bed level two plus short term ventilation. Everything else got sent to San Antonio, typically Brook Army. But everything was peacetime, like in the top triangle. The principal focus of ethical concern is between physicians and patients. There's not a lot of interaction between physicians and society and patients in any particular obligatory sense to abiding by anything other than common law. And so the individual well-being was where ethics was centered. And this is true in peacetime, like, like even now. But in war, and I was a medical company commander during the Gulf War, I realized that, you know, if you use this today, it's not going to be around tomorrow. You had to practice conservation. You had to have an eye towards frugal use of what's necessary and not be wasteful at all. And when a unit, a military unit moves, as we did, not terribly infrequently, you have to pick up everything and, and go. And so you have to make sure that you've got enough, you use it wisely because the supply chain to get more of it, whatever it is, beans, bullets, medication, fuel, all of that stuff, what we call logistics, the logistics train, would follow behind the killers, if you will. It's a hard thing to think about. But I realized that that primary ethical concern between the individual patient and the physician was eclipsed by greater concerns that we had to the common good, military unit, and also society who had asked us to be there, and the individual members of the military that I was serving also had to answer to a chain of command. And so the primary focus of the individual broke down, and you, you actually subjugate your individual autonomy in the military to the greater good. Well, it was that vision, that reality, that helped me look at the pandemic in a very similar manner. That concern for the public's well-being and arguably even the preservation of the state eclipsed individual patient well-being. So operant uh, precepts of ethics were solidarity, conservation. We had to learn to work together, live together, work and save for the future. We've reverted now back to the top triangle, but I think the lessons that we've learned from the bottom triangle should stick with us because it revealed that we have a broken public health system and we need to do better. Anybody know who this gentleman is? It's a famous playwright, George Bernard Shaw. This quote at the bottom of the slide is from him. And I first found it on a tagline, email tagline, of a friend and colleague, Renee Voss at Johns Hopkins, another neonatologist and palliative care and ethics expert. The single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. Well, I told them, I don't know why they don't get it. 
I've seen them every day and told them the same thing. I think they're just in denial. Maybe that's our bias. Maybe we're not really listening. Maybe there are cultural or linguistic, even racial interference. Maybe it's the way I frame things. I'm always talking about the negative. Did you know your baby's so sick that they might die? I don't want another doctor to come by and tell me how sick my baby is. I want a doctor to come by and listen to me and let's just talk. Or at this institution, this is what we do in this situation. It's the default option. There's no discussion. This is just what we do. So we frame things and we communicate through all of these different filters, if you will. And then when we walk away, we might think the communication has actually taken place, but indeed it has not. So thank you, George Bernard Shaw. Communication has more than the singular information exchange to it. Physicians are really good at informativeness, giving information, almost to a fault, overload. But if we've learned anything through the last few years, don't expect that all facts will be heard and accepted as truths. In order for a fact to become a truth, I have to incorporate it into my sense of value. Parents teach adolescents, right? The adolescent has to incorporate whatever the parents are teaching into who they are and what they believe in, and now the way they act. The same is true here. There's a second part of communication called attunement. And I pay attention when I'm speaking to, you know, are people paying attention? Are they looking and listening? You do the same thing, even one-on-one, -on -one, right? We have what's called mirror neurons in our prefrontal cortex. They allow us to see and regard the human face. And in the same time, without thinking about it, we mirror the facial expression. I scratch my ear, you scratch your ear. I go like this, maybe you don't have a beard to stroke, but you might put your hand up to your face. You lean in, I lean in. Go like that, I go like that. This is how we get along. Anybody have a dog? What does a dog do when you're eating? They want to eat what you're eating, right? It's, it's part of the mammalian construct of, of the brain. It, in, in the higher order mammals, it's, it's present and we pay attention to it. And there are children that don't have that mirror capacity. You know what we call those children? Autistic. They're on the autism spectrum. And you know that because you interact with them and they never look at you. They regard things more than you do human face. And if you attend to children, you can anticipate that even before they're two or three years old. You can diagnose autism before two. If, in fact, all we do is attune and get involved in this interpersonal sensitivity, yeah, we're just being polite. So you have to do the first two together, information exchange, attunement. And then the third part, and this is our greatest challenge in communication, is partnership building. What is the end result of communication that we're striving for? Building trust and being able to make decisions together, shared decision-making. So communication needs these three steps, or you may not accomplish the objective. Don't get hung up on number one, especially young people, because you learn it from old people. But we're really good at, at information. In fact, I, I've told people, you know, 
rounds can be just a data dump. Here's all the data. Do something with it. Well, that's not communication. We need to focus on relationships. And if we do that, we're actually respecting autonomy, the individual character of the people that we're speaking with. So instead of just, here's the task, here's the objective, try to understand the individual patient's lived experience, going back to the narrative again. And this is how communication can be built in a manner that contributes to self-determination and situational awareness. I I try to teach my medical students situational awareness. When you walk in the room, it doesn't take 10 seconds to take it all in. Patients here, bedpans there, respiratory treatment stand over here for the COPD patient. TV's on, cell phone's in hand. I have a few things to do before I can communicate with that. Turn that off, introduce yourself, on and on. So situational awareness also attends to individual lived experience and recognize in situational awareness that there's a power dynamic. And we, in our white coats, if you wear them, I understand there's a picture taken today, so a lot of you have your white coats. I never wear mine anymore. But in our white coats, there's this esteem and power, especially if we're standing at the bedside and a patient's lying in the bed. Anybody been a patient in the hospital laying in the bed? Yeah. What do you do? You look up. You're totally dependent. You're vulnerable. You're not eye to eye. And so this power imbalance can be viewed, again, paying attention to the room, or at least it has to be realized before you start to speak with that parent. Realize that there's a power imbalance, and really we need to diminish that so that we can attend to the common goal of the health and well-being of their child. Sit down. Maybe even take your white coat off before you go see them. That, you know, individual hospitals have rules about whether you do that or not. I like this. I'm a visual learner, and I I like this diagram that was published in the Journal of Perinatology. It had to do with prenatal diagnosis and communication, but strip that away and look at the dynamic that's pictured here, and you'll have a lesson to take home. Effective communication needs to be honest, timely, personal, empathetic, detailed, and straightforward. That means we don't beat around the bush, but we use compassionate terms. We attend to people. We're timely. I don't find out what this MRI is today and wait until next week to tell the parents. In fact, today, they're on the portal, aren't they? They're, they're going to, you have the portal, right? Parents can, t- so they will see the MRI report the next day. And they're wondering why he hasn't called them and told them what it means. Honest, hopefully, detailed. How detailed? It depends. You have to ask. Are you a big picture person or you like all the fine details and granularity? And then you respond accordingly. So if you're doing things to, make communication effective, what you're also doing is increasing the confidence that the person you're speaking with has in the individual. They will know that you're doing these things and they will think, ah, she really respects me. She's telling me the truth. She's telling me as soon as she knows. She's giving me plenty of detail. And she's pretty straightforward. She's not beating around the bush, but she's not me. And what happens then is the parent 
develops this relationship and connection to the healthcare professional, which ultimately leads to their improved coping, how they're going to contend with the situation. You've facilitated coping. And sometimes the problems we have in ethics are about people that don't have good coping skills. And I don't get why they don't understand or why they're falling apart. And I'm trying my best. This bond has not been created. Effective communication can build that bond. So ethics, all about decision-making, communication, feelings. You and I think a lot, perhaps. Sometimes people think doctors are nerds. I am one. I read a lot, and I talk about this kind of stuff. But parents think also. They may think differently. In fact, the two of you may be discordant in the manner in which you think. Perhaps you're very analytical. Doctors are guilty of that. Uh, perhaps you're very ethical and have moral inclinations as you think. Or maybe you're hypothetical. What if? Remember those commercials that Hewlett Packard had years ago? What if? If people didn't ask that question, we wouldn't have the, the wonderful things that we have in life. People were hypothetical. They put forward ideas. But some people are afraid. They think everything's out to get them. Scary thinking. Or some people are just plain practical. I'll do what makes sense. Don't give me all the fluff. Some of us are reflective. At the end of the day, we reflect on what transpired. We accomplished what we might do better tomorrow. But not everybody's reflective. And again, some sense judgmental thinking. So these things encroach on our ability to communicate effectively and impact ethical decision-making. Framing effects and default options I've already talked about. Shared decision-making. Who practices shared decision-making? Every hand should go up. We try. That's, that's, that's We try. We hope. We try. We ask the question, what is? If we communicated and we listened and we incorporated parent values, and those that know patients over a continuum have the great benefit of knowing what's important, and can then make recommendations. So I go see my internist for blood pressure. He says, okay, Brian, you have blood pressure problems. Here's six medicines. Choose one. Is that what you want? No. He knows who I am, what's important. He says, you know, knowing you and taking care of you for the last 10 years, I would recommend this one. Let's try this one. Why? Because it has this side effect profile, and, and it doesn't do that, and it doesn't interact with other medication you're taking. Oh, okay, thank you for all that consideration. That's actually shared decision-making. A recommendation, understanding means yes. the person, and we mutually decide on what the best thing to do is. First time it didn't work, right? I took a calcium channel blocker, and it worked for blood pressure, but I had ankle swelling. And I, I went back to see him. I said, what's this up with my ankles? This one? He said, you know, 1% of people on calcium channel blockers will have ankle swelling. I didn't know that. So I was in the lucky 1%, got rid of that. I'm on an ACE inhibitor. Everything's fine. But 1% of people on ACE inhibitors have a dry cough. Don't have that. I'm glad. So trial and error, making decisions together, that's our goal. And we can do it in a personalized manner that uh, empowers our parents and or individual patients. Taking into consideration their varied preferences. Some people are, you know, really wanting to deliberate. 
other people or can you just tell me what's right, doctor? You know me. Anybody been asked this question? How certain are you, doctor? This is a great paper I would recommend everybody to read. It's one page front and back, so two pages. Pediatric critical care medicine. These are two psychologists in Australia that work in the ICU to help patients and families and to help staff. And they acknowledge the fact that when parents have a child admitted to the ICU, they're afraid, reasonably so. But physicians are afraid too. Would you consider that? Takes a little bit of intellectual honesty here. But sometimes we're afraid to answer parents' questions truthfully. We're a little bit evasive. We're not real comfortable with uncertainty. So we deflect. Well, we can do this, and we'll see what happens next week. So-and-so is coming on next week, and she doesn't believe the same thing I do. So we'll, we'll just you'll have to renegotiate with her, right? This is the system we've built in ICU medicine all around the world. I've been to Singapore and Malaysia and Colombia and Guatemala and Europe, half a dozen countries in Europe and South Africa. And this is, happens all around the world in ICU medicine. That's a system problem that gets in the way of good communication and prognostication. Well, who's a good prognosticator in pediatrics? The oncologist. Colleges got smart years ago. They shared data. They pooled research to develop the right protocols. And they were then able to prognosticate outcomes for children based on a diagnosis and a treatment plan. The rest of us are late to the game. In neonatal medicine, it's only been the last 10 or 20 years that we've attended to large population outcome on certain diagnoses. Now there's a congenital diaphragmatic hernia outcomes group. There's a hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy outcomes group. There's a BPD study and outcomes group. Cardiology, same way with different congenital heart disease. But we've ignored prognostication and spent a lot of time on diagnostics and therapeutics. So we've created the situation of poor capacity, capability, or inclination to consider prognoses. That's what parents are asking about. How certain are you, doctor? And then there's the fact that many doctors think, well, are you absolutely certain? You have 100% confidence that this is going to happen. We're looking for scientific certitude when we're dealing with a clinical practice that doesn't require absolutes. So we have reticence again. I have a family member who has myasthenia gravis, and she's seronegative. The antibodies that you checked for that aren't in her bloodstream. But her clinical presentation is absolutely weakness with repetitive movement, name the extremity, going up and down stairs, combing hair, stirring in the kitchen. But the neurologist said, I can't be absolutely certain that you have myasthenia gravis. Well, turn to the literature, 20% are seronegative. It's a clinical diagnosis. But that neurologist wants 100% certitude. We shouldn't act that way because life isn't lived that way. Parents really expect us 
to give them what we know based on our education and experience and the experience of others gleaning things from the evidence base in the literature and convey that. They don't expect perfection. They expect your best effort, your best clinical judgment. So sometimes how certain are you is a question we can't understand because of the constructs that we live in in critical care medicine. Doesn't mean we can't overcome it, just needs we, means we need to attend to it. What about technology? I already alluded to pulling another machine out of the closet. You know, great article, uh, excuse me, book from back in the 90s, Neil Postman, who wrote in the 80s, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was all about television. And then technocally, which is more towards computers and technology thereafter. And this quote I excerpted from that book, I think is important. Embedded in every tool, doesn't matter if it's a feeding tube or a ventilator or an ECMO unit. In every tool is an ideologic bias, a predisposition to construct the world as one thing rather than another. The world is better with ECMO. I have ECMO, ergo I'm going to use it. The world is better having this machine or this medication or this healthcare system. We've put our trust in technology and systems. And somebody asked if there's a technological imperative in healthcare, what would your answer be? Yes? Yeah, so we have it, ergo we have to use it, right? So how is that imperative meted out? This is the best article from a journal you've never read. And it's entitled, Is There a Technological Imperative in Healthcare? by Jorn Hoffman, who's a philosopher in Oslo. The International Technology Assessment and Journal of uh, Technology Assessment in Healthcare, 2002. Examples of the imperative. Well, there's a possibility that it might work, so let's try it. Well, we can't stop doing this. We've been trying for so long. We can't stop now. We're committed. Well, this is a pretty complex procedure. I learned how to do it. So here I am ready and able. Let's find a patient I can do it on. There's quite a demand, especially from an informed public. Dr. Google says, Escape says, WebMD says. So the informed patient or family is going to say, well, what about ECMO doctor? I read on Dr. Google that, that these patients with CDH benefit from ECMO. And what do we have to do? Interpret. That's that situation. This is your child. And we have to then acknowledge that there's a demand from the public to do certain things, but there's an equal demand from those of us in practice. My colleagues all think I should do this. I'm not certain, but I'm feeling the pressure, peer pressure, and a demand that we should, in fact, do that. So Hoffman goes on and on, and I certainly would recommend it. I've recommended it for 20 years now. And yet, the realization is from Aaron Cobb, a philosopher at Auburn, who himself is a parent of a, a now-passed child with trisomy 18. All technology lives. I thought, wow. That is a powerful statement, all technology limps. It's imperfect. Nobody's gotten off the face of the earth alive. We all are subject to our finitude, our own mortality. So no one's found a permanent means to avoid injury or death. Technology is great, but it's not the be all. Five minutes, thank you.
And the other fact here is technology is amoral, not immoral. It's amoral. It has no moral sense. It's a machine. So where does the morality or the good ethical use of technology come into play? Who uses it? When? And how? And for how long? And that means you and I. The ethics of the use of technology rests in us, not in the machine. So we have to be careful. We, we need to know what patient, when, how, for how long, and by whom we would be able to measure benefit or harm. Another term from psychologists that I think impacts our practice and perhaps our ability to make decisions with and for families is affective forecasting. That means, oh, your child has this condition, we're treating this way. That means six months, six years down the road, this is what's going to happen. Any, anybody ever thought, oh, the, this child's condition, it tears up families, chronic complex illness, people get divorced, families fall apart, people go bankrupt. Well, some people do, but the majority do not. In fact, even as tragic as it is, the loss of a child does not break more families than would otherwise have been broken. The same is true with the loss of a spouse in the adult world. People in the hospice industry, if you will, have paid attention to that very fact. No, it, it doesn't work that way. It's tragic when it happens, yes. But we're in a society where 50% marriages fall apart. So it, it's, it's our affective forecasting, that's just one example. So the child's going home with a, a trach and a G2. Your, your whole life is going to be disrupted. The child's development is going to be X, Y, Z, what have you. And what happens? Those of us that do NICU follow up, we see the child six months, nine months later. It's a different child and it's a different parent. People have grown together. If we just fo focus on what's not right, we don't pay attention to all the things that are. And we also have what's called immune neglect, and that is the ability for people to rise to the occasion and buffer themselves from emotional suffering. And then again, the fact that people adapt. So affective forecasting uh, can get in the way of good communication and shared decision-making. I won't spend time on this slide, which is about uh, palliative paternalism. When there are maladaptive coping risks for any of these reasons, it may be that counseling, even by the palliative care team, moves from non-directional to a little bit more directional because the need is there. But this takes a lot of time and energy to sift through, and you have experts here that can help you with that. I'll close with this last couple of slides. Stephanie Kukora and Renee Boss uh, put together this wonderful paper. And you, you don't have to be a neonatologist looking at this. You can substitute any other condition that may have situational outcomes considered to be bad or good. And the clinician may perceive that a high likelihood of non-survival paired with a high chance of moderate to severe impairment is dismal. And very low chance of the desired outcome of intact survival. So we tend to weight things down with all of these adverse considerations. And with regard to statistical probabilities, we then communicate this to a family. But how do families see it? Oh, a little bit differently. 
parents might view these outcomes differently if any survival is better than no survival at all. And if having a surviving yet impaired child is considered the most undesirable outcome, the fact is most of those children don't survive long and may not even survive in the neonatal ICU or the pediatric ICU. And then finally, if dying following intensive care is perceived as more favorable than possibly missing an opportunity to have had an intact, don't like the word, intact survivor, the risk of an unfavorable outcome falls to zero. In other words, please try. Don't withhold this. At least try. And then we can learn together and I can write my story and feel like, I lived up to my parental responsibilities, and yes, I'll accept the passing of the child. So this decision tree, I'll leave with you. We won't walk through it, but it makes sense. Hello. Okay. There you go. And the slide set you'll have. So we can look at a case, and we're running out of time, so I'll just leave this with you. Here's a child that has complications leading to the need for therapeutic hypothermia has a, a flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, things don't look real good. How do you make a decision? Anybody familiar with Johnson, Siegler, and Winslade's four box, which is here, is very commonly used. Clinical ethics, the German, excuse me, the, the book that this comes from now in its ninth edition. Al Johnson has passed. Mark Siegler's in his 80s in Chicago. And William Winslade, I think, is still in Galveston. But these gentlemen put together this four-box approach, and I'm in the process of working on modulating it to become relevant for children. But medical indications, parent or guardian preferences, quality of life, and contextual features, these things help shape our approach. Alluded to the zone of parental discretion, and ultimately this mom asks for an ethics consult because she doesn't want there to be a, a G-tube and take the child home in such dire circumstances. And that then leads us to how do we work through the case? So here's a 10-step method. It's not terribly difficult. Identify the ethical question. What is it we're trying to answer? What facts do I need to gather and understand? Are best interests clear? How would you balance burdens and benefits? And that's a dialogue with family. Who can inform us and who is the decision maker? Are there societal or ethical norms to appeal to? Are there statements from the academy or other professional bodies that say this is acceptable or this is recommended? What strategies should we use going forward? What issues need attention with the care team? So don't ignore the team. Make a recommendation. It's not make a decision for the clinician. Make a recommendation so the clinician benefits from this process. And I always leave references, often academy statements, but not always. And then determine if follow-up is necessary. Ethics consults aren't always once done and over, especially in pediatrics. There may need to be a continuum. I thank you for your time. I'm sorry we got rushed towards the end. If any of you are interested in taking our bioethics certificate course, which is pediatric bioethics, Glenn's taken it, and it's the only one in the world Kansas City, give me a shout out. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Dr. Carter. Thanks so much for listening to that interesting talk. 
Don't forget to click on the link in this podcast for ethics credit. I'm Holly Wayman. Thank you so much for listening. Our website is pediatricsnowpodcast.com. I wanted to tell you about our new podcast we've created for your patients and for the parents out there. It's called Pediatrics Now for Parents. Health news in small bites in about 10 minutes or less. But we hope it's one less thing you have to cover in the exam room. That's Pediatrics Now for Parents, anywhere where you get your podcasts. The website is pediatricsnowforparents.com.